I'm Cullen Burke, and this is Cauldron, a history of the world, battle by battle. Thanks for listening to Cauldron. I'm your host, Cullen, and today we have an incredible story about bravery and courage that took place 74 years ago on a volcanic island in the Pacific War in 1945. Now, before we dive in, just a couple of quick housekeeping things. Please rate and review and subscribe if you haven't already. It really helps to get the show heard by more people if we get more ratings and reviews. And it'll also give me a better idea of how I can make the show better and what what insights would be uh, or what things work and what things don't. So please share with me what you think the show should look like by sending me a rating or review on iTunes. The first three people... To review after I release this show, I'm going to give you a producer credit on the next episode and a shout out. So go ahead and get over to iTunes and throw those ratings and reviews up. If you would like to see some pretty uh, cool images and videos of the battles we talk about, check out the Instagram or the Facebook. Just search Cauldron Podcast. On the Instagram, we have a book club up and the first book we'll be reading is about Bodica. And her uh, her revolt against the Romans. So if that sounds interesting to you, check it out. Basically what we're going to do is we'll uh, once I get the book, I'll break it down into sections. And I'll kind of put out when we're going to read what section. And then after we're done with that, I'll do an Instagram Live or a Facebook Live video. And interact with you guys and kind of open up a discussion about the book as we go along. All right, so that is that. As with any of the uh, battles we cover, there are going to be some names in this episode that I mangle. I just want to apologize up front and promise that it's not out of any disrespect, but it's merely a matter of having a fat American tongue. To get more info on the sources that I used and a sneak peek at the next episode, stick around until the end. Okay, that's enough of the housekeeping. Let's head to Iwo Jima, 1945, an island where, in the words of Admiral Nimitz, uncommon valor was a common virtue. The President of the United States, in the name of the Congress, takes pleasure in presenting the Medal of Honor to Corporal Herschel W. Williams, United States Marine Corps Reserve, for conspicuous gallantry and intrepidity 
at the risk of his life above and beyond the call of duty as demolition sergeant serving with the 1st Battalion, 21st Marines, 3rd Marine Division in action against enemy Japanese forces on Iwo Jima, Volcano Island, 23rd February 1945. Quick to volunteer his services when our tanks were maneuvering vainly to open a lane for the infantry through the network of reinforced concrete pillboxes, buried mines, and black volcanic sands, Corporal Williams daringly went forward alone to attempt the reduction of devastating machine gun fire from the unyielding positions. Covered only by four riflemen, he fought desperately for four hours under terrific enemy small arms fire and repeatedly returned to his own lines to prepare demolition charges and obtain serviced flamethrowers, struggling back frequently to the rear of hostile emplacements to wipe out one position after another. On one occasion, he daringly mounted a pillbox to insert the nozzle of his flamethrower through the air vent, kill the occupants, and silence the gun. On another, he grimly charged enemy riflemen who attempted to stop him with bayonets and destroyed them with a burst of flame from his weapon. His unyielding determination and extraordinary heroism in the face of ruthless enemy resistance were directly instrumental in neutralizing one of the most fanatically defended Japanese strongpoints encountered by his regiment and aided in enabling his company to reach its objective. Corporal Williams' aggressive fighting spirit and valiant devotion to duty throughout this fiercely contested action sustain and enhance the highest traditions of the United States Naval Service. The United States and its allies had, by the late fall of 44, destroyed the mobility and functionality of the Imperial Japanese Navy. Using the ever more confident and more deadly U.S. Marines to hop island to island capturing key bases like the Marianas and Saipan, Allied forces permanently imprisoned tens of thousands of Japanese soldiers on isolated islands incapable of movement or action. The U.S. Navy used its unheralded and often forgotten submarine force to strangle Japanese merchant shipping so expertly and thoroughly that by 1945 almost no Japanese merchant shipping existed in the Pacific Ocean. Even the skies, once the home of the fearsome Zero, was slowly being brought under Allied control. Most of what remained of the stillborn Japanese Empire was either already neutralized, currently under attack, or in danger of amphibious landing, naval bombardment, or aerial attack. Even the Japanese home islands had suffered from the U.S. Navy and United States Army Air Force, with its four-engine bombers raining death down upon the people, civilian, and soldier alike. As Allied Navy and ground forces crept ever closer, peeling the Japanese Empire layer by layer like an onion, the capture of Saipan and Tinian in July and August of 44 gave the U.S. 
Army Air Force a prime location to strike at the entirety of Japan, including Tokyo. The famous or infamous Major General Curtis LeMay of 20th Bomber Command used the islands to house his pet project, the impressive and as of yet somewhat ineffective Boeing B-29 Superfortress. These huge bombers with a crew of 11, a wingspan of 140-plus feet, could reach heights of 30,000 feet and carry twice the payload of the B-17. They had been bombing Japan from bases in China, but were very ineffective with the distances that they had to travel given the China, Chinese bases. So even though the B-29's range was an incredible 3,400 miles, the Chinese stations were just far enough away that not all the Japan was within striking distance of the massively expensive bombers. And also, the return flight for the B-29s themselves became very dicey after a certain point, and especially if they were damaged over Japanese air. A closer launching and landing base was needed and had been taken at the Marianas, but not all the B-29s' problems were solved. Even with the new closer airfields, the B-29s were in danger. The long-distance route that they still had to travel passed by several Japanese radar stations, which gave the home islands two hours' notice of the incoming bombers, and it gave them ample time to send up interceptor fighters and mount anti-aircraft defenses. If, as was often the case, a B-29 was heavily damaged on the bombing run, it now had to limp back over hundreds of miles of open, unfriendly water. A quick glance at the map made it clear that there was a solution, an island in the volcano chain, an island called Iwo Jima. Iwo Jima was an island ideally constructed by nature for defense, end quote, were the words of New York Times correspondent Hanson Baldwin, and he was 100% correct. Large enough to house the airfields needed to deal with the B-29 superfortress, Iwo Jima was nevertheless fairly small, only about eight square miles. Shaped like a fried chicken wing, at the island's narrow southernmost point, there hovered the towering Mount Suribachi, a 556-foot dormant volcano. From the foot of the volcano ran the narrow neck of the island, rising in a series of gradual steps, which was rough terrain but housed the two existing airfields and the eventual home of the B-29 airstrips. From these rose ragged little hills and sharp ridges that guarded the center of the island. In the north of the island, there was nothing but cracks and crevices in the earth, and these uh, basically passed for little more than claustrophobia-inducing canyons. Even the landing beaches proved ideal for the defender, as the beach ledge was steep and the ink-stained sand proved impossible to dig into and impassable for wheeled vehicles. Corporal Ed Hartman, a rifleman with the 24th Marines, said, quote, it was like trying to run in a vat of coffee grounds, end quote. To add to the otherworldly nature of the island, Iwo Jima stank. 
Fumes of sulfur with its distinct rotten egg smell rose in ghostly clouds from unseen cracks in the volcanic rock, pervading the entire island with a stench. Iwo Jima literally translates to sulfur island. Ugly, lunar, and acrid though it was, Iwo Jima was pivotal, not just for the Americans, but for the Japanese as well. Essential as a lookout post, Iwo Jima gave Tokyo hours of advance notice when B-29s were on a bombing run, and also gave the ever-shrinking Japanese air arm a base to use when striking against Saipan and Guam. In May of 44, Tojo, essentially Japan's supreme leader, contacted one of his best and most brilliant generals, Lieutenant General Tadamichi Kuribayashi. Tojo said, quote, only you among all the generals are qualified and capable of holding this post. The entire army and the nation will depend upon you for the defense of this key post, end quote. Kuribayashi, a man steeped in honor and tradition, was unable to refuse and so set out for Iwo Jima. It's telling, though, however, that when Kuribayashi left, he neither brought his sword nor told his family of his posting, indicating he knew the hopelessness of his task. This also makes sense because, much like the vaunted Admiral Yamamoto, Kuribayashi had spent years in the U.S. and Canada as a military attaché. His experiences there had led him to believe that there was no worse country than the U.S. to fight in a war. He's, he's supposed to have told his wife, quote, The people are energetic and versatile. One must never underestimate the Americans' fighting ability, end quote. At 53 and having spent a lifetime in the service, Kuribayashi was both active and highly intelligent. Surveying his new post, he recognized immediately a static surface defense would be insane, and so he set about making Iwo Jima a veritable labyrinth of death. At first, though, Kuribayashi was nonplussed by Iwo Jima. He even investigated the idea of blowing the island in two Instead of fighting nature, though, Kuribayashi decided to use the land to his advantage. Tunnels, caves, and wells were dug, solving Kuribayashi's immediate issues of cover and water. Adding on to the existing cave networks, the Japanese brought in experts to help with uh, ventilation and structural security. The volcanic rock proved pliable enough and easy to bore through. The Japanese eventually dug 16 miles worth of tunnels, including command and observation posts, artillery positions, and cleverly disguised pillboxes. The mountain of Suribachi itself was home to thousands of Japanese soldiers in intricate and elaborate tunnel networks. The plan was to not contest the beach landings at all. In fact, Kiribayashi wanted multiple waves to reach the beaches and begin the trek inland. 
Once they had reached the multiple prearranged firing zones, though, some 750 pillboxes and firing positions would open a withering fire on the Allied soldiers. The Japanese had forged Iwo Jima into a legitimate death trap for both the Marines and themselves. Iwo Jima would become home for the men of the 3rd, 4th, and 5th Marine Divisions. Some for a short while, others forever. The war in the Pacific had slapped and whipped and brutalized the U.S. Navy, Marines, and Army into an efficient, effective, and deadly fighting force. Because of the broader situation, basically Churchill and the British people were physically incapable of helping to fight the Japanese in any great form, and Stalin and the Soviets calculated uh, reluctance to get involved at all, the war against Japan was primarily handled by the United States. With that being the case, it was the Joint Chiefs of Staff that decided the strategic goals set forth, and Iwo Jima was at first not even part of their plan or the immediate plan. Initially, the gruff, secretive, brilliant Admiral King believed that the Formosa-China axis of attacking Japan's home islands was the correct decisions. After much debate, Admirals Spruance and Nimitz were able to persuade King that the Iwo Jima-Okinawa axis of attack was eventually the right path. In so doing, they did shorten the war, but only by taking the far harder, more costly route. With the Iwo Jima decision made, it merely became a matter of when and how. With mopping up operations happening throughout the late fall and early winter in the Pacific Theater, it was decided to wait to hit Iwo Jima until early 1945. The original plan submitted called for a whopping 10-day massive naval and air bombardment in the hopes that the island's defenders would be utterly destroyed. Because of a myriad of other operations, that probably shouldn't have, but did take precedence, the bombardment of Iwo Jima was whittled down to just three days. Still, the naval and air forces involved were impressive. 116 warships, including 16 carriers housing 1,200 planes, eight brand-new battleships, 15 heavy and light cruisers, and 77 versatile destroyers. The total manpower in Marines, sailors, and airmen amounted to some 100,000, all for a sandy eight-mile island defended by just 22,000 Japanese soldiers. After the three days of bombing, things briefly intensified as the U.S. Navy hit Iwo Jima on February 19th at 6.40 a.m. with the most intense pre-landing barrage of the entire war. 
An hour and 20 minutes later, planes from the carrier force worked the landing beaches with high explosives and napalm. The American high command was fully aware of how dangerous Iwo Jima was, or at least they thought they were. And so they tried to ensure nothing was alive on the surface of the island before the landings began. A little after 8.30 a.m., the first wave of Marines landed. They were surprised at the bizarreness of the landscape, but even more so at the lack of any resistance put up against them. While the first few waves moved off the beach, Kuribayashi watched from his command post underground, waiting. As soon as the Marines reached the prearranged firing positions, he ordered his hidden artillery, mortars, and machine guns to open fire. The beaches quickly became a charnel house as wounded and dead men floated or lay everywhere. Robert Sherrod said of the beaches at Iwo Jima, quote, A nightmare in hell. About the beaches in the morning lay the dead. They died with the greatest possible violence. Nowhere in the Pacific have I seen such badly mangled bodies. Many were cut squarely in half. Legs and arms lay 50 feet away from any body. End quote. As the Marines moved inland throughout the day, the realities of fighting on Iwo Jima became clearer and clearer. The Japanese had dug in so well, their positions were all but impervious to artillery, naval fire, or mortars. Even air attacks had no effect. The fighting on Iwo Jima was going to be a series of nasty clearing actions that ended when the hidden defenders had either been blown away, burnt up, smothered, or stabbed. The first day alone cost the Marines between 2,600 and 2,800 casualties. Even the fighting Seabees, the construction crew that had been building airfields all over the Pacific Theater, suffered more losses at Iwo Jima than any other battle in the war. Keith Wheeler of the Chicago Tribune said to a soldier headed to the beach, quote, I wouldn't go in there if I were you. There's more hell in there than I've seen in the rest of the war put together, end quote. In many ways, Iwo Jima was the culmination of, of weapons tech, offensive and defensive tactics, and mechanical death for the entire Pacific War. Horrific though it was, the first day was somewhat of a success, as the primary airfield objective was reached and the neck had been taken, which firmly isolated Mount Suribachi from the rest of the island. Day two saw Colonel Harry the Horse Liversedge's 28th Regiment move to attack Suribachi itself. Again, the previous bombardments had little effect on the dug-in Japanese. More or less, the bombs had just moved the sand around. Indicative of the fighting all over Iwo Jima, the 28th Regiment's assault on Suribachi was painfully slow, as Japanese guns would quickly appear from hidden firing positions and then take their shot and then disappear before being located by spotters. It was essentially like the deadliest meerkat colony in the world. This second day saw the Marines lose about 3,500, which caused them to plan for the landing of the Reserve Division on the third day. Progress had been painful and costly, but it was being made, 
and around the island, units of Marines were able to work in concert and learn from each other's experiences on how to deal with the hidden enemy. This freedom of information and quick dispersal of information was thanks mainly to the incredible team of Navajo code talkers. Highly skilled code breakers, though the Japanese were, they had previously cracked both the Army and the Air Corps codes, the Japanese were never able to break the Marine Code, the Navajo's language. This ingenious use of a Native American tongue allowed orders and information to fly around the island. The first three days alone saw over 800 radio transmissions relayed by the Navajo teams. All 800 sent or received without a single error. The fourth day on Suribachi would go down in history, not for the fighting, but for the artwork. Liversedge's 28th Regiment had been methodically clearing the mountain, pillbox by pillbox, shooting, blowing up, and most efficiently burying alive the Japanese defenders wherever they came upon them. As they worked their way to the top, a few Marines found a pipe and attached a small American flag to it. Planting the slapdash symbol on top of the mountain, the gesture was greeted with cheers on the beaches and honks and whistles from the ships around the island. Liking the look but wanting an even bolder statement, the men of the 28th Regiment found a larger flag and a small group struggled to raise it. From about 25 feet away, Joe Rosenthal, an associated press photographer whose eyesight was too weak for him to be allowed to fight, clicked the trigger of his camera and so took the most famous photo of World War II. Historian Richard Newcomb said of the image, only one face could be seen, and that could not be identified. It was a bad news photograph, but a masterpiece of composition. It had movement and drama and told a story that needed no caption, end quote. Splashed on newspapers around the country the next day, the New York Times headline was, quote, Old Glory Goes Up Over Iwo, end quote. The image struck a nerve with the American people and went on to be used in stamps, monuments, posters, enlistment posters, and on a war bond run that raised $26 billion in the very final months of the war itself. Even FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the commander-in-chief, always with a keen eye for good publicity, was moved by the photo and immediately called for the flag raisers to be found and sent home. The fighting on Iwo Jima had already claimed three of them, though, and another was very severely wounded. One of the flag raisers, John Bradley, said of the iconic and literally monumental moment, Quote, it was the happiest moment of my life. Quick break in the action here just to remind you guys that if you like what you're listening to, subscribe and throw the podcast a rating and review on iTunes. It helps get us heard by more people. 
If you love what you're listening to, swing over to the Patreon page and donate to the cause. Any amount helps with research material and recording equipment. And it's not for nothing. There are some really cool tiers of rewards that you have access to, and uh, that includes the Great Commanders series, where I cover one of history's most brilliant military minds, and you also get episodes early. Also, I post various articles, research materials, different things that I find as I go along. The other rewards include being able to pick a particular weapon or battle for us to cover, and you also get to be on the podcast if you want to. A dollar a month makes you a skirmisher, which earns you my undying gratitude and a shout-out in the next episode and a producer credit. So, to find us on Patreon, just click the link in the show notes. All right. That's enough of that. Let's get back to the battle. The first week of Iwo Jima alone saw the Marines suffer almost 8,000 casualties, and the fighting was nowhere near done. In in a roughly 800-square-yard area, There would be some 30 enemy tunnels and dugouts to be found, cleared, and buried. It was eventually figured out that for this kind of fighting, the flamethrower, shovel, and the hand grenade were a Marine's best tools. Shooting a viscous, flaming mass of fire from the hands like some kind of fire god, a Marine with the 80-pound dual-tank M22 flamethrower became highly efficient at clearing booby-trap-riddled bunkers and tunnels. In the debate for the most terrorizing weapon of the war, the M22 was a nasty combo of diesel fuel, gasoline, and napalm jelly. Open the nozzle on the two tanks on the backpack, pull the trigger mechanism, and what follows was painful, horrifying death with 100-foot range. Perfect for sticking into small vents or pillbox sites and clearing the room or even firing down a tunnel, catching the enemy long before they could make it to safety. The M22 was, however, extremely dangerous to use as you mostly had a napalm bomb strapped to your back while running through enemy gunfire. But its effect on the Japanese, both physically and mentally, was extreme. By the 10th day of the invasion, United States forces had control of just under 50% of the island, and they were able to start using their superiority in vehicles to kill large numbers of the defenders. Flame-throwing tanks were able to spout the same volatile mixture as the M22, but only ten times the amount and at far greater distances. These bad boys were basically rolling castle defenses, sending burning pitch down upon the unprotected masses. Because of the Japanese commitment to orders and duty, incredibly few surrendered or even survived. Quote, kill or be killed, end quote, was the unofficial order of the day on both sides, and they committed to it. The casualties being taken by the Americans were so heavy that at one point the use of poison gas was considered and approved by the Joint Chiefs of Staff only for a feeble, dying, but still morally principled Roosevelt to shut down the very notion. 
Thousands of Japanese soldiers would suffocate or choke to death, even if not from poison gas. Innumerable Japanese soldiers stayed crouched in their hidden firing positions and caves, waiting for orders that never came. Instead, American bulldozers began moving Earth around in the ultimate cost-effective method of killing. Thousands upon thousands of Japanese soldiers slowly suffocated after having hundreds of pounds of black sand plowed on top of their positions or over their air vents, killing them horribly, but saving American lives in the end. On March 4th, the second most iconic moment in the fight for Iwo Jima occurred. That Sunday, a crippled and heavily shot up B-29 Superfortress, the Nine Bake Cable, which is one name I saw given, the other was the Dynamite, tried to make an emergency landing on the improved airfields at Iwo Jima. All other incoming planes were cleared of the area, and the nine-bait cable made three passes under enemy fire at the airfield. Finally touching down, the huge B-29 Superfortress skidded to the very end of the runway and sent up a plume of dust like a, machine, a magician's flashbang. Men all over the island cheered the sloppy but successful landing, knowing that this was the very reason that they were there to fight the Japanese at all. Within half an hour, the nine-bake cable was up in the air and heading home to refit and rearm. The deaths of hundreds of thousands of Japanese civilians were in that moment, unfortunately, but maybe necessarily, assured. By battle's end, the Americans lost about 800 casualties a day. On D-Day plus 35... The 36th day of fighting, Japanese General Kuribayashi, having fulfilled his duty and exacted a terrible price from the enemy, committed suicide. His body was most likely buried with the majority of his soldiers. A small handful, some 200 Japanese soldiers, willingly surrendered. The rest of the 21 to 22,000 man defending force was shot, stabbed, incinerated, blown up, or entombed in the island, as one Lieutenant Thomas Fields observed, quote, the Japanese were not on Iwo Jima, they were in it, end quote. During the cleanup process, a message from some dead Japanese soldiers buried alive in a cave was found. It said, quote, to the Americans, we have fortified this island for over a year, but we cannot win this war alone with just the Yamato, or warrior, spirit. We cannot match your superiority. There is no other road for us to follow but to die. End quote. On the night of March 23rd, 24th, one final Japanese counterattack was made and subsequently put down. The fighting on Iwo Jima was over. The firing had finally ceased. Places like Mount Suribachi and the Bloody Gorge had bled the Marines white, but ultimately the objectives had been captured and secured. The toll was a whopping 24,053 combat casualties. 
Iwo Jima was one of those strange battles in World War II where the victor suffered a higher casualty rate than the defeated. The ferocity of fighting put men in some of the most dramatic and impossible situations, consequently leading to unparalleled bravery and courage. 27 U.S. Medal of Honor awards were given out for actions and events on Iwo Jima. 22 to the Marines and 5 to Navy personnel. Through all the island-hopping horror shows the Marines went through, the 22 Iwo Jima Medal of Honor awards account for 25% of all the Medal of Honors won by the Marines in World War II. Again, Fleet Admiral Chester Nimitz summed the battle up best when he said, quote, Among the Americans who fought at Iwo Jima, uncommon valor was a common virtue. President of the United States takes pleasure in presenting the Medal of Honor to Private First Class Jacqueline H. Lucas, United States Marine Corps Reserve, for service as set forth in the following citation. For conspicuous gallantry and intrepidity at the risk of his life above and beyond the call of duty while serving with the 1st Battalion, 26th Marines, 5th Marine Division, during action against enemy Japanese forces on Iwo Jima, Volcano Islands, 20th February, 1945. While creeping through a treacherous, twisting ravine which ran in close proximity to a fluid and uncertain front line on D-Day plus one day, Private First Class Lucas and three other men were suddenly ambushed by a hostile patrol which savagely attacked with rifle fire and grenades. Quick to act when the lives of the small group were endangered by two grenades which landed directly in front of them, Private First Class Lucas unhesitatingly hurled himself over his comrades upon one grenade and pulled the other one under him, absorbing the whole blasting force of the explosions in his own body in order to shield his companions from the concussion and murderous flying fragments. By his inspiring action and valiant spirit of self-sacrifice, he not only protected his comrades from certain injury or possible death, but also enabled them to rout the Japanese patrol and continue the advance. His exceptionally courageous initiative and loyalty reflect the highest credit upon Private First Class Lucas and the United States Naval Service. All right, that is the Battle of Iwo Jima. I learned so much while researching this incredible battle, and I hope you enjoyed it. One of the significant controversies of World War II is obviously the dropping of the atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, Japan. Likewise, there is some debate as to whether or not Iwo Jima was necessary and whether the battle should have happened at all. 
from what I can gather, some 2,250 B-29 emergency landings took place on the island. With crews of 11 airmen, that alone saved almost 25,000 American lives. Added to that was the more regular and active strategic bombing and the fire bombings of the home islands of Japan, which, though admittedly evil, certainly shortened the war and saved countless American and Japanese lives. If you disagree with me, send me your thoughts by going to the Your Theories page on the website. Just go to the link in the show notes. For this episode, I used some great sources, but the most helpful by far was William B. Hopkins' book, The Pacific War. The man writes so well, it's uh, it's incredible. He breezes through some very convoluted history in a way that is both clear and yet loaded with detail. The one major drawback was that the actual... uh, the publishing company, the edition, there was a couple of weird spelling issues and grammar, and it was a little funky, but uh, it's a great book. The content is great. The other thing that might be a drawback for some of you is if you are a fan of MacArthur, uh, this book might not be for you because he is clearly not a fan. Uh, he sends a considerable amount of shade MacArthur's way throughout the entire book, uh, but I thought it was interesting because I had never... Um, run into anybody that spoke negatively of MacArthur, so it gave me uh, an interesting new perspective on the iconic general. As always, if there's an inaccuracy, message me on the website or email me or Facebook and I will fix it. Check out the Patreon for cool extras and Instagram for images, Facebook for articles. Next up, we are again hopping in the way, way back machine to North Africa where it's the end of the line for Pompey's friends Cato and Scipio, as Caesar will finally win his dignitas at the Battle of Thapsus. Thanks for listening, and have a good one. <laughs>